Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Devraga Personal Finance, episode 90. And in this episode, I'll discuss in detail about the steps in writing your own financial plan. Having a financial plan is really important, and we plan things in detail when it comes to holidays, Christmas, birthdays, but mostly forget or even push back on purpose the all-important financial plan. Now, before I go on to the main segment of this podcast episode, I have some exciting news to share. Finally, after two years, I have got my podcast approved and live on Apple Podcasts. Apple Podcasts is by far the biggest podcasting network on the planet, so I'm pretty chuffed to be featured on it. So if you haven't already signed up, sign up via Apple Podcast, and please give me a five-star rating. It really does help with their algorithm. And remember, my podcasts are free, and I'm keen for as many people to listen, download, and provide feedback as possible. So please share it around. For those of you that are new to the channel, the three aims of this channel is to educate, empower and be entertained. Just a small disclaimer, I'm not a financial advisor, I'm not an accountant, I'm not a lawyer, nor am I a financial planner. Make sure you take any financial decisions you want to make after listening to my episodes with your appropriate advisors. But if you're stuck on what to do, here are some simple steps to get you in the right track when it comes to saving, investing and personal finance in general. In my humble view, there are five easy steps which anybody could follow. Step one is pay yourself first. Take 20% of after-tax income and put it aside. That is your pay yourself money, never to be touched. Step two is invest that money, ideally into something that you understand or want to understand. I just invest in index funds because I understand index funds and I understand the stock market. Step three, reinvest dividends. Make sure any dividends that you get from your investments goes back into those investments. The power of compounding is very real. Step four, do it forever. By forever, I mean at least 20, 30, 40 plus years. And step five, my favorite, is to automate the process. Because with automation, you're less likely to make mistakes, you're less likely to forget. Now, if you do these simple five steps over a long period of time, you're more likely to have more money than you'll ever need. Remember, money is just a tool. It doesn't bring happiness. Use it as a tool to make your life better, but most importantly, to make the lives of people around you better. Now, just to address a recent question that I had, uh, and that is, where does topping up $25,000 for your superannuation fit in, and does it get included in your pay yourself money and how do we incorporate that um, into the 30 30 20 20 
budgeting strategy. Now, I'll go into budgets a little bit more because that's part of the um, writing your written financial plan episode today. But the question is simply asking, should the top up of the $25,000 of superannuation and concessional contributions be included in your pay yourself 20% after-tax income that you've already put aside? And the simple answer to this is no. Um, Ideally, um, you should do both. Okay, so ideally, you should maximize your concessional contributions and have the ability to save 20% of after-tax income. But I do understand that it's quite aggressive. But if you had to pick one or the other due to the cash flow issues that you may be having, then I would suggest this picking the most tax effective way, and that is to maximize your super. It's more tax effective and it's easier to do and also can be automated. Now let's use an example to highlight this simple, simple phenomenon. Suppose you make $100,000 per year gross income. Your employer will be paying super of 9.5%. That is $9,500 on top of your wage into your hopefully industry super fund or a low fee superannuation fund. This means you can still have concessional contributions of up to $15,500 to make up the $25,000 in pre-tax contributions to your superannuation fund. Now doing this means $13,175 will go directly into your super and $2,325 will go to the ATO. Your super fund will automatically do this for you because remember, any pre-tax concessional contributions that you put into your super up to a maximum of $25,000 gets preferentially taxed at 15%. So using $100,000 as your gross income, your after-tax income works out to be around $6,123. And 20% after-tax savings per month will be around $1,224. Per year, you should have really saved $14,000. $695. But remember, by maximizing your superannuation, you've already done $13,175 out of the extra $15,500 that you've contributed. So because you've already contributed $13,175 in after-tax money, you only really need to save another $1,520 for the year to make up for the so-called 20% of pay-yourself money. Now, this strategy can be used if cash flow is an issue. That is, you can't do the $25,000 in pre-tax contributions and also save on top of it 20% of after-tax income. Obviously, if you can do both, then yeah, go ahead and do it. That makes complete financial sense. But the question came to me on the weekend about, you know, is it possible to do one or the other? And yeah, the answer is doing one or the other is fine. But if you had to do one particular strategy, then obviously maximizing your superannuation would be the tax effective and the smarter way to do it because you save a lot of tax, but also more of your own money goes into your retirement fund and actively working for you and producing dividends and producing returns. And over the long run, the more money you keep, the more money you're going to have at the end of your retirement. So Again, ideally, you would do both, but I understand that doing both is not going to be possible. If you're doing one or the other, then pick the strategy that has the least amount of tax, and that would have to be your superannuation. I hope that clarifies this situation um, a little bit better. 
Uh, and I know that uh, doing both strategies is very, very aggressive. Um, but I guess the other disadvantage of maximizing a superannuation is you've you got to be aware that you are essentially locking your money away until retirement. And of course, with my strategy of paying myself 20% of after-tax income, that is the strategy right from the get-go. So I guess in terms of locking it away, um, superannuation is a fairly safe locked mechanism for be, for you to be able to save money for your retirement because to actually access it and accidentally spend it is next to impossible. Um, so that is another sort of uh, good thing, I guess, in a way um, of locking away your pay yourself money. Now, I hope that clarifies the situation a bit better. Now to the main topic, what is a written financial plan and is there a step-by-step approach to do it? Um, so I'm going to go through sort of nine steps um, for you to be able to consider uh, that you need to write your written financial plan. And a financial plan or an investment strategy should be written. Um, it's not something that you have in your mind. It's not something that you discuss with your family. It's not something that you sort of just talk about. Um, yeah, you do all that, but you need to finalize it. You need to write it. You need to put pen to paper or you need to type it up or do something so it's concrete. Uh, because anything that's written down is a friendly reminder of your strategy, but it also formalizes it. It's a bit like having a job. Your job is not really formal unless you sign a contract. And in the contract, you have the terms and conditions of your contract and your employment clearly written down. And that's kind of exactly what a financial plan is. So the first step you need to do is you need to write down your goals. And the goals have to be very, very specific. So goals such as I want to be rich or I want to be financially free, they're not specific goals. So you need to think about what you want your money to accomplish for you. And it's a very personal decision. Remember, money is just a tool. It's not going to bring you happiness. For example, goals can be divided into three terms, short term, medium term and long term. So here's an example of how your short term goals might look like one to two years, I'd say. You might want to save for a holiday, flying to Canada in business class for a period of two weeks. Um, that might be a short-term goal in the one to two years. You might want to prepare for having a child, including private health insurance expenses, furniture for the child, and you've got to detail what furniture you need, consumables for the first year of life for the child, the loss of income if the partner works or childcare and daycare costs. So you need to itemize it for the next one to two years. And you might want to have a financial glow to prepare for having a child. Having children is quite expensive. Medium term goal, we're looking at about five to 10 years worth. You might want to save for a brand new Mercedes Benz A45 with AMG package, or perhaps prepare for child expenses such as schooling. Which school do they want to go to? What's going to be the school fees? What's the expenditure involved in that? And the long-term goals, you need to be much more specific. So you might want to have a retirement figure in mind. So you might want to say, I want to aim to retire with an annual income before or after tax, depending on your preference, of about $60,000. So that might be your specific long-term goal. And you can sort of subcategorize that in terms of out of 60,000, you want to be able to afford to go on a holiday, you want to be able to own a home, you want to have a couple of cars, whatever it is. Uh, you can do it another way. You can sort of say long-term 30 plus years, I want to retire with you know $2 million in assets, um, producing an income of 4% per annum 
which is around $80,000. Okay, that's another way of looking at it. You can either look at the entire asset portfolio or you can have a look at the per year income that would be suitable for you to retire on. Personally, I prefer to use the per year income because that gives me a very grounded, realistic figure that I can work towards. And then basically I divide that by 0.04, which is roughly the 4% rule. Now be prepared during this goal writing process to be disappointed. Be prepared as the years go on that your goals are not achieved. And you've got to think about which of these goals you're willing to compromise on. You must be willing to compromise on your goals because life isn't perfect. And part of this financial plan is to prepare for the worst and hope for the best. So just like you go on a long road trip, you need to be prepared for stopovers. You need to be prepared for fuel stops. You need to be prepared for food and water. You need to be prepared for traffic. You need to be prepared for road conditions, weather conditions. So the same goes for a financial plan. Number two is you need to work out where do you stand today? So what I've been talking about with goals is where you want to head to, but you need to work out number two step, which is where do you stand today? Now, once you know where you want to get to, um, you need to know where you are today. Part of this is creating a net worth statement. And I've discussed financial security in detail in uh, episode 73, where I do discuss net worth measurements and various ways of doing this. So go back and listen to it if you're interested. It's really useful that I found to learn the basics of financial security and ways to measure it. So for example, you need to ask yourself now, what is your financial security right now? Um, and you need to be, have a systematic way to approach this and calculate it for yourself. Now, the easiest way to create a net worth statement is you've got to write down everything you own, property, cars, furniture, jewelry, liquid assets like cash accounts, investments, index funds, ETFs, bonds, REITs, whatever. Then you make a list of all the debts that you might have, money that you owe, property, margin loans, car loans, student loans, family loans, whatever loans that you may have. And then your net worth becomes your assets minus your liabilities. It's a simple mathematical calculation. So let's use an example to calculate a particular net worth. Supposing your property is worth $500,000, you have $100,000 in the bank, your superannuation is a couple of hundred thousand dollars, and your share portfolio is worth $100,000. You add all of those assets up. I'm making it very you know, simple, so assume that you don't um, uh, you don't have any furniture and I'm, I'm not really including uh, a car, although you can include a car worth probably 10 grand. So if you did all that, your total assets becomes $910,000. Then you look at your liabilities, keeping it very simple. Property, 400,000 in mortgage, margin loans for shares around 30K, car loans worth about 20K, the car's only worth 10K. Credit card, even if debt is not there, you need to include what your credit card amount that you can actually max out at. So let's say you can max out at 5K, even though you don't owe, you don't owe the 5K straight up. Student loans or HEX or help debt, 30K. Your total liabilities then becomes $485,000. So then your net worth becomes 910000 minus four hundred and uh, $85,000. Okay, so it works out to be 400 odd K. That's your net worth statement. So you've calculated where you want to be and you've calculated where you are at the moment. And hopefully for a lot of listeners today, your net worth is going to be positive. 
for some of the listeners today, your net worth is going to be negative. Early in your career, early in your life, it's completely normal to have a net negative net worth unless you had a huge inheritance or you won the lotto or whatever. Most people have a negative net worth. When I graduated out of medical school, I had a neutral net worth because my student loans um, were exactly the same or maybe a little bit less actually. Maybe I had net worth positivity because I saved like crazy because I really wanted to buy my first home early in my career. So uh, yeah, my net worth was probably a little bit unusual because I saved a lot of money as a medical student, uh, but it was just positive. But most people coming out of university may have a negative net worth. So you've calculated where you need to go. You've calculated where you are. Now it's a matter of linking the two together and trying to work out what steps you need to do in order to get to where you are. And the thing that's going to help you with is step number three, and that is reviewing your cash flow situation. I've discussed in detail about cash flow as a concept in episode 52, where we go into line of credit, cash flow and profit, etc. But in simplistic terms for this episode, cash flow is money in and money out. You would hope that money in is more than money out in your personal circumstances. If money out is more than money in, you have a negative cash flow. This is a major problem and is a red flag. Looking at all of your income, earnings, business income, dividend income, look at all of your expenses, food, utilities, mortgage, insurance, school fees, eating out, miscellaneous, etc. Ideally, when you do this, um, you wouldn't include your 20% of after-tax income, pay yourself money as part of your income, because remember, you're trying to put this aside right from the get-go. So with the remaining 80%, You'd want to have a positive cash flow situation. That is, you have more incomings than more outgoings just from the 80% of your income. You're not including the 20%. So that's step three. And then step four is about noticing any cash flow issues, particularly if it's negative. You need to look at your budgeting. And I've discussed budgeting strategies in episodes eight and episode 53. Again, go back and listen to it. Went into great in-depth detail about budgeting. But once you've done your cash flow analysis, it helps you look at your expenses. And part of budgeting is looking at your expenses. Now, I'll briefly address some of the basic budgeting strategies um, in this episode. If you're new to this channel, so you don't have to, you know, I mean, I encourage people to go back and listen to old episodes. But if you want a summary, then just stick around. There are a number of budgeting strategies that's been documented, and you've got to find the one that's right for you. The first one is balanced money formula. Basically, it's called the 50-20-30 rule. 50% of your money goes to your needs, 20% on savings, and 30% on wants, based on gross income. The second type of budgeting strategy is cash-only budgeting, which is called the envelope system. Dave Ramsey talks about this a lot. Put money into envelopes. Uh, and in fact, this is probably the most common strategy we teach our kids with money jars. Uh, we ask them to put money into specific jars so that they can then use it for their specific purpose. The third type is zero-based budgeting. That is, you give every dollar a job or a name so that the income matches the expenses, including savings and investment. The fourth way is the 60% solution, and that is 60% of income goes to committed expenses such as mortgage, food, water, lights, car payments, clothing, and 40% then gets divided into 10% subcategories. 
And in that subcategory might be long-term savings, retirement funds, short-term savings, and miscellaneous or entertainment fund money. There is something called a no-budget strategy, believe it or not. Yeah, this is really a thing. That is, it's free-for-all. You don't actually have a specific budget on a monthly basis. Um, I don't recommend following this. Um, this is based on the philosophy that budgeting is useless and doesn't contribute much to financial planning. I actually think budgeting is very useful, but the type of budget that you use is probably going to be more useful for your particular personal preferences. But having a no budget strategy, I guess, is a budgeting strategy. My favorite, pay yourself method. That's a budgeting strategy. This is where I stand and take 20% of after-tax income and pay yourself first, put it away, then live on the remaining 80%. Um, and the reason why it's full is that um, you don't really have to worry about saving. Um, you've already saved your 20% for retirement. So that's your pay yourself 20%. Values-based budget. That is, uh, you spend money based on your personal values rather than worrying too much about specific categories. And then, of course, the last one is your own budgeting style, which is my own budgeting style that I've come up, um, uh, which hasn't really been written up, so I'm going to claim it. This is the Dev Raga budgeting style, and that is the 30-30-20-20 rule. Um, this is something I came up with during the last sort of 10 or 11 years of experimenting, um, and Basically, it's based on after-tax income, and the uh, goes like this. So 30% of after-tax income should be committed to mortgage, nothing more. 30% of after-tax income should be committed to expenses, uh, nothing more. 20% uh, of after-tax income should be committed to pay yourself money, um, and then 20% of after-tax income should be your entertainment or wants or luxury items, holidays, etc., um, now, out to this, um, how much can you afford in order to buy a car? That's also part of a budgeting thing. Uh, I say 20% of your after-tax income per year um, should be the maximum you really should be spending on a car. You really shouldn't be spending more than 20% of your yearly income um, on a car. Uh, and that's after-tax income. So to give you an example, if your after-tax income is $80,000 per year, then the maximum you really should be thinking about spending on your car is 20 grand. Uh, you shouldn't really buy a car that's worth more than 20 grand and preferably pay cash, don't borrow, don't borrow money to buy a car. It's a very conservative way of looking at uh, car purchases, remembering that car is a depreciating asset. You lose money on it 100% of the time. Don't ever tell anyone that buying a car is an asset. It's not. It's a liability, uh, it doesn't produce any income, it sucks out income, and the minute you drive out of the lot, it loses value. Now, there's loads of budgeting styles, pick one, choose one, stick to it. Um, looking at your expenses provides an opportunity to reduce your miscellaneous spending, restaurants, eating out, takeaway, coffee, etc. Of course, this all depends on how bad your life you want it to be. For example, I love coffee, I can't live without it. So there's no way that I'll be stopping my morning routine of having coffee because it's a thing I really, really, really enjoy. So be careful about how much you're scrounge around for money because you don't want to make your life a living hell. Um, so yeah, that's again a personal choice. 
The fifth thing that you need to think about when it comes to investment plan or financial plan is debt management. I don't like debt, so avoid borrowing money at all costs. There are some debt, which is um, called good debt. So basically any debt which is used to grow your wealth with investments, so property, shares, etc. Technically, that's called good debt. But when it comes to risk, it also comes with its own set of risks. There's bad debt, which is always bad, and that is car loans, personal loans, any consumer debt like credit cards, payday lenders. This is just bad. Don't ever let anyone tell you that buying a car on a lease, on a loan, is a great strategy. It's not. It's spending money that you don't have, especially if you're using it for personal purposes. It's a disaster. So if you can buy a car outright cash or pay as much as you can towards a car cash, borrow as little money as you possibly can for things like cars and don't ever owe money on a credit card. Don't ever tell you, don't let anyone tell you, sorry, that you can do credit card hacking and points hacking and blah, 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 all that sort of stuff. The credit card companies are way smarter than you and me. They've worked it out and they've worked it out for a million customers. There's going to be a set amount of percentage that are going to default on their payment and therefore they'll charge interest. And there can be a rare occurrence, and again, COVID-19 has proved this, where you may lose your job, you may have job insecurity, income insecurity, health crisis, whatever it is, and if you have credit card debt or consumer debt, then they've got you. Then there, there's, there's absolutely no way of getting out of it. So consumer debt is always bad. I would assume that most of the listeners to my podcast don't have any consumer debt or have very little consumer debt and want to get rid of it. And I suspect you're here listening to this podcast because you're already well and truly in charge of your finances. But if you aren't, here's a simple tip. Never borrow consumer debt. It's like swimming with a weight attached to your leg and whichever way you look at things, it's bad. Now, I've discussed debt management in detail in previous episodes in episode 30, debt consolidation, episode 21, fire and debt recycling, episode 12, investing and paying off debt, episode 7, debt paying off strategies. Go back and listen to it. Consolidate your knowledge on what debt is and how you can get rid of it. If you don't know what to do with spare cash and you don't want to invest, pay off your debt. And this includes your low interest mortgage. That should be part of your financial plan to paying off your mortgage over time. It's okay to be debt-free. It's liberating. It's an awesome feeling. There's a lot of people out there that might say, you know, you're paying off your low-interest mortgage rate. You should put it into the stock market and you'll double your money in X amount of years and blah, 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 blah. But if you're uncomfortable, if you don't know what to do with the stock market, if you're not willing to learn and put the effort in, then simply pay off your mortgage. Gives you peace of mind. You can sleep well at night. That's completely fine. That has to be part of your financial plan. So that's step five, debt management. Step six, maximizing your retirement account, which is in Australia, super. Learning about concessional contributions, learning about non-concessional contributions. And I've discussed superannuation plenty of times in previous episodes. Again, go back and listen to it. If you did nothing in terms of savings, then at least maximize your super. Like our listener question earlier in this episode, 
you can just use your after-tax pay-yourself money into super. That's fine. If you can't do both, you can just maximize your super. Um, that's completely acceptable. Super is a marvelous strategy and a marvelous system we have in Australia, and you must maximize it. I know recently there's been a lot of controversy about super, about legislative risk, uh, and I think the current government in Australia are trying to delay or even freeze superannuation so it doesn't increase to 10%, 10.5%, 11%, and maximize at 12% super. They want to keep the super to be 9.5%. Um, yes, that is controversial, but that's what we have to work with. So maximize it. Is it a risk for putting money into super because you can only access it after retirement? Absolutely. But so is driving a car, so is flying on a plane. We do it all the time. Investing is always a risk. There's nothing risk-free. Even money under your mattress loses money over time due to inflation. That is inflation risk. Anything is risky. But to not do anything is even more risky. The other thing is people that say, I don't earn enough, so I can't afford to contribute to super. Well, if you don't earn enough, then at least try and contribute something to super because there's something called a low contribution plan. The government will match $500 into your super account if you contributed 500 bucks. So if you earn less than $37,000 per annum, that is an option that you can choose. That's only 500 bucks a year, um, which, you know, it's, Yes, 500 bucks a year can be a lot of money for some people, but it's a lot less than what you may need to do to reach that $25,000 figure. Let me put it to you this way. The government is matching your super up to $500 per year if you're a low-income earner. This means they're matching your dollar for every dollar. And your potential return, therefore, or your actual return, is 100% for simply putting money into your superannuation. 100% return. Tell me which investment gives you 100% return. Nothing gives you 100% guaranteed return. You can do it year in, year out. So that's great. So again, superannuation, write it down, have an investment plan, have a financial plan that incorporates superannuation. That is step six. Step seven is you've got to have a plan for rebalancing and asset allocation. For me, I usually check my portfolio once a year in detail. This works well. I occasionally check it during the year, but I don't change my strategy too much. Don't chop and change too frequently because fees may eat up your returns that you would have gotten. Episode 50 and 80, I talk specifically about asset allocation and the importance and also various strategies. And again, the basic principle here is do not attempt to time the market. Here's why. When you time the market, you need to pick the right time to buy and you need to pick the right time to sell. So you need to be right twice in the market cycle. You're unlikely to do this repeatedly over the long term. My super, despite all of the stuff that's happened over the last 10 years, has returned around 8.4% per annum. And all I've been doing is trying to maximise and contributing to it. That's all. It's simple. It's boring. Investing is simple. It's boring. It shouldn't be exciting. Remember, time in the market is way more important than timing the market. 
I still get a lot of questions about buying individual stocks. I'm not against buying individual stocks, but I don't buy individual stocks. I'm not smart enough to do it, so I know some people are, but it's not practical working full-time and researching stocks on the side unless you're willing to put in the hours and hours of work into it. And even if you did, you're not probably making it right because the more you need to calculate the time and effort you have to put in to do this, that is opportunity cost. If you're spending your time researching investments and stocks, hours and hours and hours, then that time that you could have spent doing that, you could have done something else that created income. You got to factor, factor that into your returns. But nonetheless, rebalancing an asset allocation is a very important part of your financial plan and an investment plan. Step eight, you got to have personal insurance. Um, that must be part of your financial plan. So life, TPD, trauma, income protection, business, asset protection, loan protection, car protection, building contents, landlord, rent protection. There's heaps of different styles of insurance products. Basically, if you have dependents or people that rely on your income to live and be supported, you need to have some form of insurance. Income protection is essential in the rare event you're unable to work for long periods of time after an illness. You've got to take into account emergency funds. You've got to take into account sick leave pay if you're entitled to sick leave pay. What this coronavirus pandemic has starkly highlighted in Australia is the casualization of workforce who are not entitled to sick pay and the contractor workforce who are not entitled to sick pay. Because sick pay in Australia is only entitled to people that have permanent part-time or full-time work. So you've got to factor in personal insurance. And step nine, lucky last, is estate planning. Now I've discussed wills in detail in episode 14 and in episode 34. The aim is to protect your estate so it ends up in the right hands and the right thing is done by your last wishes. Now, I used to look after a lot of nursing home patients. I used to be a GP looking after a lot of nursing home patients. And let me tell you something. People come out of the woodworks when patients die or about to die. Your first cousin once removed or a friend or a carer or long lost relative, they all come out. I've seen it. I've experienced it, and I've discussed in detail with some patients about it before they die. So if you think it won't happen to you, it will. And if it doesn't, that's fantastic. But if it does, your loved ones need to be protected. Things to consider in your financial plan, in your written financial plan, is kids, relatives, partners and ex-partners, stepchildren, Guardians and executor of the will, how will they get paid for their time? Any debts, divorce or prenuptial agreements that you've signed, and testamentary trusts. So those are the nine things that you need to detail, or perhaps a page each in your written financial plan and investment plan. And you must have one. So that's about it for written financial plans. The moral of this episode is... We have a plan for holidays. We plan our trips. 
we plan our destinations. I'm sure a lot of you out there are itching to get out of Australia for your first post-pandemic holiday. We even plan what we buy for shopping, gifts, Christmas presents, birthdays. So we need a plan for our investments. We need a plan for our retirement. We need a plan for our finances. And it's surprising how many people just ignore it and take it as it comes. That's a risky approach. I would argue that you need a financial plan written even if you don't have much money, even if you don't make much money, even if you have a negative net worth. In fact, that is far more important to have a plan because you need to get out of that. You need to start making more money. You need to start investing. You need to diversify your income and you need to turn your negative net worth into positive net worth. Remembering a financial plan is a plan at a specific point in time. And things may change. That is life. So be prepared to amend it. Be prepared to make changes to it. Be prepared to edit it. 2020 has probably highlighted this starkly. I was meant to be in Thailand in July. I'm meant to be in Dubai in September. I'm meant to be somewhere else later this year. But plans change. Have I lost money in cancellation of trips? Yes. I'm very grateful that most of the airlines and hotels have actually refunded most of the money. I was meant to be in a conference in Singapore in April. Lost the money. So plans change. So you've got to factor that in with your investment plan, with your financial plan, and be prepared to edit it. So how often? Perhaps every two to three years? You need to look at your financial plan to make sure that it's still appropriate. You may find that your Mercedes-Benz A45 with AMG Sports Package is not required after all. Now that's it for this episode, episode 90. Remember to like Devraga Facebook page, shout out to questions and comments or topic suggestions. And thank you very much for Anonymous for the question about using your concessional contributions as part of your 20% after-tax pay-yourself money. That's fine. If you want to do that, that's okay. Ideally, you do both. Share this channel with family and friends. We are on Apple Podcasts, Anchor App, Castbox.fm app, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Player FM, or directly via devraga.com. Make sure you comment and provide a five-star review. It really does help with their respective algorithms. And remember, always pay yourself first. Take 20% of the after-tax income on the day that you get paid and put it aside and do that forever. Learning about and writing a financial plan and investment plan is very important. Don't put it off. Don't put it off in the hard basket. Involve your family. Involve your kids if possible. Have it in writing so you have a reference point. This is Devraga Personal Finance, episode 90. And as always, make sure you stay safe. Mm-hmm.